Well, hello there, film fans, film goers, film lovers, film aficionados, and of course, filmmakers. You are now listening to the Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast with yours truly, Akil Wingate. And yes, this is the destination where you can find documentary, feature film, drama, action, science fiction, comedy, romance, horror, experimental, music video, and the list goes on and on. But of course, the big question is, why haven't you gotten your festival pass? It is so easy. Go to flickfair.com to get your Flick Fair Film Festival Pass today and then plunge yourself into new worlds brought to you from filmmakers all over the world. Now you hear that? That is the sound of the band tuning up, getting ready for their show, where throngs of fans will come together to sing at the top of their lungs the lyrics to their favorite songs. That's the sound of the sound engineer checking the drums as the drummer pounds thunderously at the toms. That's the sound of the front man slowly going up and down the scales, warming up his voice before tonight's big show. That is the sound, my friends, of the venue getting ready to reach a fever pitch with thousands of screaming fans. And yes, we're front seat at the show. That is the sound of our next guest, who's been on the road with the band, who's seen the highest highs and the lowest lows, both from the floodlights as well as backstage. And he is here to tell us all about that right after this. You're listening to the Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast with yours truly, Akio Wingate. Are you a dreamer? Are you an imagineer? Are you a storyteller? Are you a filmmaker? Well, here's your chance to bring your film to the Flick Fair Film Festival. All you have to do is go to flickfair.com to register and enter your film into the festival and viewers from all over the world will finally see what you have been working on. Go to flickfair.com to register your film. Be sure to follow us on social media. Go to Instagram and look for Flickfair. The Flickfair Film Festival official podcast is here every week with an exciting story and an exciting filmmaker to tell you about how they render the magic that you see on your cinema screen. Join us every week for more exciting stories at the Flickfair Film Festival official podcast. This is the Flickfair podcast, and we are tuned in. Welcome back, listeners. You are listening to the Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast with yours truly, Akil Wingate. And well, you are in for a treat. It does not get any better than this. Well, if you are a music lover, then you will have certainly heard of the band that is featured in our next guest's film. And if you are a music lover, then you certainly know the story behind 
this band's rise to stardom and the well undeniable connection that they have with their fans that they call a community so let's just get right into it here's today's logline logline third eye blind uh went on tour without a new album and they decided to kind of play the uh the hits as it were and this is after a 20-year anniversary tour and we headed out with them and decided to explore their fan favorite motorcycle drive-by which was a which was a song that didn't really get radio play and wasn't used for commercials but connected with the fans uh, in a certain way that their hits didn't and we wanted to explore that um, connection between band and fan in motorcycle drive-by and my name is David Wexler, and I'm the writer-director of this film. And there you have it, uh, listeners. Our guest today is David Wexler, who is the director, writer, and uh, co-producer for the film Motorcycle Drive-By that uh, he's brought to us here at Flick Fair Film Festival. David, thank you so much for joining us. It truly is a pleasure to have you here with us. My pleasure. So for those of us and that would be probably very few, but given that this is an international audience, for those of us who aren't uh, musically inclined, uh, tell the audience who Third Eye Blind is. Third Eye Blind is a band, um, uh, front man is Stephen Jenkins. They've, they've been around for about 25 years. I believe it's gonna be that anniversary next year. And in the mid nineties, especially, they were seemingly everywhere. Um, I was, I believe, in high school at that time. And whenever you turned on television or went to the movies, their the hits were all over the place. Uh, songs like Jumper, Semi-Charmed Life, and um, Graduate, they just seemed to kind of take over uh, pop culture at that time. And I think to this day have the, have the biggest uh, selling, you know, I think first uh, publishing record deal or some, some crazy stat, um, and they've sold you know, millions of records and Spotify, I think upwards of a billion hits. Mm. Um, they're a big alt rock band. Certainly the, uh, I'm aging myself, but certainly the soundtrack of Generation X uh, during the, the late 90s going into the 2000s. Um, from my recollection, they were like the darlings of MTV. Uh, they were like maybe a, a, a handful of of bands that um we could rattle off that we knew were going to be played because everybody knew every lyric to every song and 30 Eye blind uh goo goo dolls um let's see who else some am i forgetting yeah. someone we're, we're all sort of in that conversation at the time uh sure and we're definitely as I said, the soundtrack of Generation X at that at that period. But uh, I'm curious, you are not to put you on 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 the spot, but um, you are a bit younger than me, so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm curious as to how you came uh, up into the Third Eye Blind universe. How did you discover this band? I remember it very well, actually, and I don't know if it was that um, that iconic album art of that woman's face with, uh, it, was, it was tinted red, I believe, and you didn't know if she was laughing or smiling or mm. it was just kind of this haunting image. And I was at sleepaway camp and I remember a bunkmate of mine was always you know, well-versed in music. And this was the CD that he was swearing by at that time. And mm. like I said, I was probably 12, mm. um, maybe 
13, 14, that area. And um, it just took over. Uh, you, and you, you, you had heard it before, so you could sing along with the CD. And I just remember that being, that being a big album, especially that summer. And funny enough, we, we, we convinced our counselors to take us to, I think a bunch of kids were going to Dave Matthews or something, and I was mm. sick of that type mm. of music. <laughs> and yeah, I think yeah. Third Eye Blind was playing, um, was playing a gymnasium. I told Steven this actually a few months ago, and I don't think he remembered the show, but I think they were playing a, like a high school gymnasium because it must've been just when the album dropped. So mm. quite different than the, um, you know, they were set to play Radio City last year during the pandemic, you know, quite, quite a different venue. Mm-hmm. And it was a very intimate show. And I remember that being a great show. So mm. uh, uh, I go way back listening to Third Eye Blind. And yeah. They, they say, they say, there's a saying, never meet your heroes. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, in, in this instance, I, I gather that uh, that theory can be refuted because you, in fact, not only met Third Eye Blind, you were embedded with them to create this film. Um, how did you get access? Um, that's actually an, an interesting story. I had, speaking of never meet your heroes, which I think is a great point, especially with the docs that I kind of make, because mm. I, I try to make documentaries where it's just really mean the subject. I, I don't like the talking head. I love the band, the talking heads. I don't like the talking heads type doc or where, where you interview a whole bunch of people to, I like just going to the source. So my mm-hmm. first doc was Curtis Slew and the guardian angels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got to meet him and we became very close. And then, and then subsequently my third doc was on William Bozinski. He did, he did uh, which we can talk about later, but the disintegration loops, the fabulous electronic musician. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've kind of been meeting some heroes of mine and it is very interesting. The reason I bring up Curtis Sliwa is my co-producer, Brad Coleman, partner in film crime. We've known each other forever. Uh, we were at the Denver Film Festival premiering uh, Vigilante, the Curtis Sliwa film, mm-hmm. and Third Eye Blind had been playing that night. Um, so we kind of dropped our plans, <laughs> whatever our festival plans were, and we went to see Third Eye Blind. Mm-hmm. And we're just blown away by the concert because I hadn't seen them in so long. And, and we, we didn't really know you know what the what the uh, what the crowd would be like. Mm. Was it people our age, younger people, older people? Who, who knew? And and it was everyone. Yeah. Uh, and it wound up just being one of the great. I'm a huge, huge music fan, and I've seen so many wonderful concerts. But this was the the concert, I think. And we kind of looked at each other after, and I just said to Brad, I was like, "This is going to be the next film, 100." percent So mm. uh, that's a long way of saying that the next day. Um, I found a number for an old manager that they had, and he put me in contact with Missy Collazo, who was the current manager, and she's just the most wonderful person, um, unbelievably hard worker, and, and tried to make this happen with me for about a year. Mm. And we could really never get Stephen on the phone. Um, and I think he was always a little hesitant to do a doc. But mm. when we decided on what the angle was, I was on my way to a wedding. And she said, well, Stephen wants to talk. And I said, great. You know, when I come back from the weekend, she's like, I kind of want to talk right now. So I just took, you know, I got off the highway and um, jumped on the phone with him and then wound up having having to get ready uh, for the wedding in the car and almost Mm. finished the wedding. So Mm. it's a funny story. But and then that kind of just threw everything, um, you know, into gear. Wow. And uh, I can only imagine that uh, from the, the, the jump off point of, being at that concert and possibly being transported back to that time at summer camp, um, hearing the music, 
uh, as an adult uh, takes on a whole new layer um, for you as a listener, as a music fan, but also eventually as a, as a film director um, versus what you, what you heard as a kid at, back at summer camp. Do you, do you, do you, from the perspective of a music fan, before we really get into the filmmaking, from the perspective of a music fan, uh, when you hear Third Eye Blind's music now, and uh, you have some of these floating memories back from childhood. Um, do you notice uh, sort of an evolution uh, in terms of the music, but also in terms of what you hear in their music now as an adult? That's a great question. I mean, I think, I think what surprised me was how timeless that album still is. And it's, mm. it's really always kind of just been in my top 10, top 50, just depending at the time, you know, those things change. But mm. um, I remember, I think the only difference is what you pointed out earlier, they were such like an MTV band. And I, I don't know why, but Steven was like that guy, like I knew his name. There were other bands that I may have loved, you know, like Eve Six at around that time mm. or, or that type of band, but I wouldn't really know the front man's name or, um, Stephen was was like his his reputation kind of he was there he was on Z100 he was being interviewed he was on the MTV shows he was just around um, so I think the only difference is that the the music feels the same it's just that it's it's removed from the zeitgeist a little bit mm -hmm. um, so if, yeah if that makes sense I guess um, it reminded me of times and when I was young. And of course, I guess, you know, some of these songs are darker than you'd think, like when you're young and singing yeah. to them, because that poppy hook or that sing song, you know, they're kind of a little darker, the songs about yeah. sometimes about drug use or uh, breakup and pain. Um, maybe that can come through when I was a kid and you were just listening for the melody. But I was just so surprised how well it holds up. I think, um, Someone in the documentary even says that, you know, motorcycle drive-by could drop today on the radio and mm -hmm. it just feels timeless. It's, it's, it's not from the nineties. It's not from now. It's just this timeless piece. Mm. It's, it's kind of bittersweet as well, because this was the, the title, the, the title of the film and this, this uh, B-side, so to speak, um, is both heartbreaking and triumphant in both breaths. Steven says himself that the record, the label didn't really, uh, get behind this particular song. And yet here it is now front and center in your film and uh, sort of the anthem for so many people who we meet uh, who are going to see uh, the band on tour. Um, what for you personally resonates with uh, this particular song? I think it's the idea that and Stephen says it in the doc, it's that hurt or, or relationship hurt could be redemptive. You know, mm -hmm. if you're the one doing the heartbreaking or your heart is broken, um, it doesn't matter almost. It's the experience of it. It's like uh, the timeless saying about it's almost better to have had love and lost it than to not have had it at all. I think that um, what I've realized in life are some things that are just very hurtful on the surface or the most impossible things. How do you overcome this? How do you get through this? Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, there's almost a catharsis and a comfort in like, you know, wow, I was really open at that time or very vulnerable at that time. It's, it's weird that some of these darker times have become times of comfort looking back mm -hmm. on them. 
And mm. I think that's that's something that's explored in the song. And I, I think what we tried to do by going back in time uh, to see where Stephen created the song. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna come to that moment a little bit later in the uh, podcast. We actually have that clip. Um, but speaking of your conversation with Stephen on the telephone. Did you know that this song was going to be sort of the center of your film? Did you know that uh, your approach to the film would be uh, sort of um, a vulnerable look at uh, Third Eye Blind backstage, particularly Stephen, um, as well as a look into the community that uh, embraces Third Eye Blind? Uh, if so, how did you how did you package the the film that you intended to shoot? and get Steven on board? I think Steven was excited about this angle because it wasn't just gonna be one of those rock docs, you know, mm. uh, focused on, you know, drugs or, you know, this or breakups or whatever. And that, that was never my intent in the first place, but I think that having a specific angle protected both of us. You know, mm. I, I always liked the work with some type of constraint. I think that my art is the best when that happens. I like time constraints. I like um, uh, artistic constraints. I like blinders on like that. That just, it just makes my message that much more clear. So a constraint never bothers me. And for, for Steven, I think he became more comfortable because we knew the angle. We knew it was mm -hmm. about fans. We knew it was about connection. Um, we're big fans, both of us of, uh, you know, art house cinema. We could talk about their latest album that came out because I did some music videos for them and was the art director for that album package. So we totally loved like the Godard French New Wave aesthetic. We, we mm -hmm. knew we wanted to shoot this in black and white. Mm -hmm. So as we started bouncing those ideas around, I think we got very comfortable with each other. Speaking of that wedding weekend, I always try to go the extra mile and I didn't want to, you know, even though you have a commitment on the phone, there's no contract here yet. You know, you can't, I didn't want to lose this. <laughs> it's like mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I had finally had the opportunity. So I remember staying up all through that night and I put together like a little lookbook, like mm -hmm. literally just a collage of images or feelings or textures. And I, and I sent it off and went to sleep and, and Stephen was like, that's spot on. So I think that helped. I think our visual aesthetic and, and having that constraint of one song, interaction with the fans this is how it looks this is how it feels mm. gave us both uh some comfort mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i don't say trust because he actually corrected me because we, we premiered at tribeca uh and i said uh, oh i thank Stephen for trusting me and he said on stage in front of everyone well i don't trust anybody mm. but i guess as close to that trust as you can get well let's just say that comfort level mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's uh that's actually excellent advice also for filmmakers who are aspiring to do just the exact same sort of uh project that you've uh, you've embarked on with third eye blind to um to to sort of sit front and center with their uh uh subject and have the same level of uh access um and intimacy with their uh subjects to to create a lookbook as you called it and then mm -hmm. uh send it to them so that the 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 band or the politician or the athlete or whoever it might be um, will have a, a better perspective of what it is that you're trying to do. Um, how how much of this would you say was a collaboration with uh, Stephen and the and the guys in the band? I think it was a I think I, I feel it was a big collaboration. I I um, I showed Stephen the first cut. 
and I remember very nervously trying to eat dinner for 20 minutes as he mm. watched it. Um, and his first statement was, I believe it's excellent, which is always a huge sigh of relief on my end. Um, mm. Curtis had a similar feeling the first time I showed it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, you get a little, or one, not Stephen necessarily, but I think it's only natural that one gets in their head a little bit or starts showing it around or starts seeing things differently. Mm. And I think in that, he was helpful in, you know, giving good notes. I think Stephen has a good eye as a filmmaker. We've subsequently actually even written two episodes of a um, scripted uh, show that we want to work on together. So he, he, and he's an excellent writer and an excellent storyteller. So. Mm and I know he's directed stuff in the past. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed collaborating with him. Um, mm -hmm. We've collaborated many times since. So I, I do feel it's always a collaboration with him and it's fun to do. The, the first big question that came to mind watching this, I've watched this uh, a number of times for <laughs> a number of little, little Easter eggs that uh, fans of the band would, would look out for. Um, mm -hmm is how do i say this uh gosh i want to say this the right way um you know when i'm going to say this as a kid i'm going to say this as you know from the same perspective of, of as you having listened to a band that you adored as a kid and then finally meeting them um when you finally are sort of reunited i'm going to say it that way reunited with with a hero or an idol uh, after after years and years, and you begin to see them as human. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's such a jarring experience because my my uh, memories of Third Eye Blind have always been those interviews, as you said, those talking head interviews in front of the camera for MTV or for different uh, news junkets, etc. And um, uh, we'd never really get the, the full intimate, uh, full access to them. Uh, but then again, I don't know that we ever really asked for it because we were so adoring of who they were to begin with. And now um, there's this moment where uh, Stephen talks about uh, writing and struggling and uh, the inspiration coming from the divorce of his parents. And then finally uh, having that breakthrough moment where the song is played on the radio and his mother uh, calls him excitedly screaming on the phone. And we see that he's uh, extremely touched about that memory. Um, for you as the, as the filmmaker, but also as, the, as a fan, uh, what was it like for you to to have this sort of intimacy with Stephen and the guys uh, and have it play out on on camera for you? No, I mean, I, it's very uh, humbling. It's very humbling for me. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad you picked that memory because that's important. I like to go there. It's important to go there. I think for whatever the reason I was trying to make the film, um, I think that, that that was his film moment. And I, and I remember Curtis having a similar moment 
about, actually having to do with his father, mm. where that was, you know, I don't want to say a, a breakdown, but a maybe maybe it's a breakthrough or or a, a bit of a relief or mm. a cathartic release or something. Mm. So those moments are important because, you know, I, I I think so. I don't want to speak for him, but but in that moment, to me, so much of the band and the movie and that became maybe that having to do with him and his mother there. Yeah. Um, and I think in that breakthrough, I'm able to tell other aspects of it because we reveal that vulnerability. So I'm just happy that we could go there and we had that type of relationship. And and I've lucked out with that with William Bazinski and also Curtis. Mm. Um, so it, it means a lot. Um, I try to sit as close as possible mm -hmm. uh, when I'm giving the interviews. And I think my angle is like, I, I don't want to, it's not that I'm not interested in the other people who tell the story, but a lot of times you get that sensationalist type of, um, I'm almost, there's some angle I'm trying to tell or what I'm trying to reveal. I, mm. I try to, to, to work with the person. It's, it's our, I really try to make it our movie. So I'm glad that you talked about the collaboration because if there's not that comfort level, you're not going to get the quote unquote goods anyway. Mm. Um, so, so, so I was happy we could go there. Mm. Um, yeah. And I imagine you have to have, uh, as, as we used to say back in the neighborhood, big ears, meaning you are uh, a keen listener, um, knowing, knowing when things are not said, but are said, so to speak, um, especially being around, around uh, these gentlemen here. Uh, listeners, we actually have that clip. We're going to play it now. Uh, our guest is David Wexler, who's brought the lovely film Motorcycle Drive-By about the band Third Eye Blind to us here at Flick Fair Film Festival. We've got the clip for you here. We'll be right back. I had worked for so many years. It's just trying to get a song on the radio, and there I was playing on the radio. But I got a call from my mother, and it was left on my answering machine. And she was, like, screaming, and she doesn't, she doesn't scream. <clears throat> Remembering that moment um, is is really it's 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 joyful, but it just caught up with me. Every month, tons of new films from filmmakers all over the world make their entry at the Flick Fair Film Festival, and you can check out all the hottest new films by going to flickfair.com. Get your pass today. Find us here every week for the Flick Fair podcast for scintillating conversations with filmmakers and movers and shakers in the world of cinema. This is the Flick Fair podcast with your host, Akia Wingate. Welcome back to the Flick Fair official film festival podcast with yours truly, Akia Wingate. Our guest is writer, director, producer, storyteller, David Wexler, who's brought us the lovely film, Motorcycle Drive-By, about the band Third Eye Blind. And you have to have been living under a rock if you don't know who they are. But in case you don't know who they are, they're only just a superstar band that has been the soundtrack of certainly my generation, Generation X, but the generations that followed as well. And as we see in the film, uh, the fans are kind of a who's who, every age range represented. David, did you find yourself uh, immediately amazed at uh, 
both the faces, both young and old, completely vibing together in the in the audience when you were filming uh, the guys in concert. Absolutely, and and I can't think of a band that that does that better. Um, mm. I mean, literally, we're talking, you know five and eight year olds all the way up through <laughs> 70 year olds. Mm. Um, I found that fascinating. It, it, you know, it was, was almost, I hate to use this word, even though I'm like the son of a pastor and grandson of a pastor. There's a moment during the <laughs> concert where Steven says, turn to a stranger and say, hello. Uh, you know, say glad that you made it, glad that you're here. And it's almost like, uh, uh, well, in for, for those of us who grew up in a in a, in, in the church and in, in in the U.S., there was a moment when the pastor would say, "Turn to your neighbor and say hello, neighbor," and Stephen sure, says, "Turn to your turn to a stranger and say hello." And there's a moment where we see some of the younger audience members embracing some of the older audience members, who, mm -hmm. uh, by one way or another. Uh, cross paths at this concert, um, and we he refers Stephen refers to them as our community. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about this community. You you certainly got to interview them during the concert to get their take on who who Third Eye Blind is. But in in your own words, who would you say this community is? It's a very loyal fan base. I, I was shocked at the amount of tattoos, especially motorcycle drive-by tattoos. I mean, we're talking huge bits of lyrics and choruses. Um, a lot of people we met had gone to dozens and dozens and dozens of Third Eye Blind shows. Yeah, there's a woman um, who said she went to more than 70 concerts. Uh, yeah, it, it's wild. So there's a huge devoted fan base. And just speaking more of that community aspect and... I'm gonna um, not quote Stephen directly here, but he's he's talked about it a couple of times with me, and I think I've mentioned it on an interview or two. But he kind of used himself as this antenna to almost mm. a higher power, really. Mm. And it's um, he's very selfless like that. Like he's just getting these vibes from the universe, and he's sending them out. Mm. There's no um, as much of a rock star as I do feel he is, and he has mm -hmm. that great rock star persona. Mm -hmm. he is very humble in that way. Like he just views himself as the antenna and he's going to send out the, uh, you know, mission if it were, and he's going to receive it from the fans and bring it into his art. Mm -hmm. I mean, he even calls out, I think it's two girls um, in the audience that he, he's, cause it was, it was like a, a horrible rainstorm, <laughs> mm -hmm. which wound yeah. up really benefiting the film. But I mean, mm -hmm. it was pouring. Um, and there were, you know, lightning threats and they had to stop it. And the show had to start early. And I think he describes, you know, a bunch of people who, who, who are just soaking wet in the rain, could mm. ruin their, 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 their night. And they're just rocking out and he's getting inspired by them. That, that's really what the whole movie's about. It's that mm. mutual connection. Um, it's that mutual, it's that energy share. Mm. Mm. Yeah. He even says that he uses a technique of, there's a moment when they're talking about uh, the the guys are sitting around the table and they're drinking sake, and he, uh, I guess they're they're sort of having a post show sort of uh, meeting type of thing, and mm -hmm. he's mm -hmm. saying that one of the something that he uses is uh, vibing from the faces in the audience and using it as as a means to make each song uh, 
new for the first time each time. Um, like he, he really, really is a, a receptor and antenna um, mm -hmm. and an exchange with the, with the audience. Um, and all of this is, is so well, well shot. The, the images are just absolutely pristine. In fact, going from the very beginning with that nice tracking shot under the bridge into the, the, the long expanse of the, the tour buses into finally the, the dressing room with the guys. And of course the, the intimate cafe restaurant bar uh, where Steven first wrote uh, the song. Um, how did you conceptualize shooting this? Um, especially knowing that uh, the money shots would be in a, in a venue where you have tons upon tons upon tons of people in the audience and uh, getting those, those nice pristine shots, but also making sure that you're not in the way. Um, right. how, how do you make that work? This is the this is the money question, both for film <laughs> film fans as well as for filmmakers. So uh, we're putting you on the spot with right. this. So I think the aesthetic was important. I, I knew black and white immediately. Um, mm -hmm. Then I thought about some black and white documentaries. There's that famous Bob Dylan one. Mm -hmm. um, looked looked at that a little bit. Um, my favorite concert docs, though. Uh, other than Stop Making Sense, which is just such a beautiful performance. But my favorite docs in general are when you have that access mm. um, where it feels like the camera can just push into a small room or a small environment or see something that you might not see. Um, I started my career with a film, I mean, with a TV show called College Life on MTV that I created and produced when I was very young. And it was mm -hmm. before really selfie storytelling was a term and it was before smartphones when we had to teach the students how to take these little handy cams mm. and turn it on themselves like literally almost reinvent if you will the selfie at that time which was with a camcorder mm -hmm. um but the beauty of the show was that you could sneak these little cameras into environments so i guess that quote-unquote sneakiness was important so i knew i wanted to handle black and white beautifully molded really well shot and and ryan mitchell who's a great cinematographer you know, we work together to make it look great, but I knew I wanted it to be intimate. Another thing is that we really had to be careful because um, this wasn't a huge budget and there was access that you would think, even though it's the band, you could shoot wherever you can't really because some venues give you limited access. Mm. Um, so that's where the constraint comes in. So if I knew I could shoot in this room or not this room or this green room or not this, like, I really believe that constraints, especially for a smaller film like this, um, kind of make you focus the art a bit more. So, yeah, that that that, that kind of led to the aesthetic. Well, that's uh, sort of like the magician pulling the the curtain back on the um, the illusion, because I, as right. <laughs> as a as as a viewer, uh, my immediate impression was that you had full access. Um, nope. The, no. <laughs> quite. Quite, quite the contrary. Quite wow. the contrary. Wow. Um, yeah. Magic of filmmaking. But, but I think, I think, I think, yeah. But I and I think that's and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's what we hope to do. But think about it. When you see any famous actor or actress, uh, you know, we know who these people are. Unfortunately, this day and age, we know their personal life. We know all those things. Mm. And yet, the magic of the movies transports us, and we believe that they're a spy for X amount of time. Mm. Um, but I think that's what you have to do. You have to find out the way to do it. So for that 
beautiful kind of supercut at the end, we mm -hmm. use a couple different shows. I don't know if you can tell that or not tell or if that so the, so the end way. isn't so the end isn't uh, is the end at Joan, Jones Beach or is that at another show? The the end of the narrative is at uh, Jones Beach. I mean that that was kind of our. I mean again, we almost lucked out. We hated it at the time, but we lucked out with the um, with the rain and with the rain because yeah. I think it was so dramatic and beautiful and it looked great and and it just showed how loyal these wonderful fans are. Uh, the supercut of the song at the end that plays through though is is about you know maybe eight different shows ah. now. And and luckily, Stephen is such a professional, and you know Brad, uh, my production partner and editor, uh, was great at this as well. But Stephen, I mean, Third Eye Blind in general is so tight that we actually found one live performance that we could cut through because cutting different performances, the sound would have been horrible. Yeah. But his his their um, performances are so tight and so rehearsed. Yeah. I mean, in a good, and I mean that in a really good way. Yeah. Uh, they always feel different. We were able to use one track and kind of make it all work. That that was we totally, you know, lucked out a bit there. Even the um, even the impromptu performance uh, in the uh, cafe um, where he's on the acoustic guitar. Uh, right. Even even that that was because as a as someone who's worked in the music industry, um, I noticed. Oh well, that's in tune as well. The the guitar is perfectly in, <laughs> the guitar was perfectly in tune with the the. <laughs> <laughs> with the with the uh concert performance as well and so i was thoroughly impressed with that um well i'll tell you something funny about that so that 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 was tricky because that was completely uh impromptu uh -huh. i knew it was such an important scene that that was i was horrified about that because um first of all i lucked out and through missy and the guitar tech uh, we were able to sneak this guitar out. That's actually Steven's guitar, but Steven had no idea that this was happening. Oh, wow. And I also, you know, we're much closer now. I didn't want to offend him. I didn't want to shock him. I didn't want to put him on the spot. This was extremely early in the morning. Mm. And then I had to take this uh, guitar, his guitar, keep it in my house, which I was almost afraid to go to sleep that night. But, <laughs> but having, you know, playing a little guitar myself, you know, if you bang it in that case, yeah. I mean, everything's off too. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to retune it. I mean, I, I treated this like, uh, couldn't believe. Um, like a Fabergé like egg. Like a Fabergé so, yeah. like egg, right? So I finally get this to set and then it's like, you know, you got to make sure it doesn't fall over and whatever. And then on top of that, I have to somehow convince Steven to play. And the only mm. thing he has to say is, no, I'm not going to play. And he would have had all the right to say that because it was nine in the morning or whatever time it was. Yeah. Um, but, but, but we, we pulled that off and thankfully it was in tune. Hmm. How do you, yeah. how do you prepare in advance? Do you, for example, uh, for a lot of narrative filmmakers, they'll storyboard uh, a number of the things that they have in, in their head uh, and then put it down on the paper or under some sort of device, et cetera, to get every angle um, ready for when they actually attack it. Um, do you storyboard for something of this nature? Do you sit in on a tech rehearsal? Um, how do you prepare for something of this size and this nature? No, this was because the, the the whole purpose. I, I think we we chose French New Wave uh, uh -huh. as the inspiration, and to me, that's much more about character and feeling than it is storyboarding. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, one of the films I'm gonna. By the way, I'm just hearing a little thing in my earphone, so if, if it clicks off, I'll just uh, click onto the computer. So 
sorry if I jump out for a second. No um, problem. Um, um, I, I'm trying to get this uh, Mickey Spillane kind of detective noir film mm. coming out. That's going to be one of the next things. And for that, that's storyboarding. That's, I mean, I'll look to Hitchcock film, which was so storyboarded and so beautiful. But, 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 but this was the complete antithesis. This was about emotion and character. And, mm. I wanted the if it was storyboarded and it was planned out, I think that the viewer wouldn't have that um, romantic kind of just dreamlike mm. swaying of coming from scene to scene and not knowing what's going to happen next. There's something very um, uh, raw about it, the, the way it was done. But I think if we thought too hard about it, we'd lose that that vibe. Is there is there anything you left on the cutting room floor that? Uh you wish you could have put in, but you said, no, this is, we, we stick with this and uh, um, you, you, you can keep for yourself as a, as a personal type of viewing. Um, it's funny because normally in my films, there's not, but this there, there, the first thing that comes to mind is, and I think I was wrong here. Maybe I was right. I don't know, but I was trying to push to kind of get the T on uh, who this song was about. You know, <laughs> like uh, okay. I had it in my head, like, ooh, let's reveal who the who the the song is about. Mm. And there's funny parts in it where Stephen and I, I then become in the movie more, and I'm kind of pressing him, and Stephen and I have this kind of back and forth, which is really fun. And but then it just became strange. I, I think the, I think we both realized, well, once you reveal who the song's about or whatever, it ruins the. the it removes it from everyone having the experience because yeah. it should be everyone yeah. has that motorcycle drive by. So yeah. Yeah. that was a lesson I learned. Um, yeah. But that I was think a, some of those scenes are. Yeah. I, in my own personal opinion, I think that was a good choice because, uh, yeah, in uh, so much as Stephen himself says that this song now serves as kind of an anthem for so many people, uh, in so many different uh, particular situations, those with broken broken families, those those who are struggling uh, and finding hope all over again. Um, uh, I think revealing who he intended it for could sort of remove some of the magic that so many of the fans over the years have invested in it. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's intriguing. I'm curious myself. Um, but listeners, we're going to play another clip from uh, the film Motorcycle Drive-By that's been brought to us here at the Flick Fair Film Festival by writer, director, producer, David Wexler. We'll be right back after this clip. And there was this girl behind me and she was like, I wanna hear Motorcycle Drive-By so bad. Like, I wanna hear him so bad. And it came on and we like pulled her up to the front and like put her in front of us. And she literally just cried the whole time. When I first heard Motorcycle Drive-By, that became my song. Anytime there was something going on, I could listen to their music and I could especially listen to that song. and. It just was everything to me. Be sure to follow us on social media. Go to Instagram and look for Flick Fair. The Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast is here every week with an exciting story and an exciting filmmaker to tell you about how they render the magic that you see on your cinema screen. Join us every week for more exciting stories at the Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast. This is the Flick Fair podcast, and we are tuned in. 
Welcome back to the Flick Fair Film Festival official podcast with yours truly, Akil Wingate. Our guest is David Wexler, who's brought us the lovely film Motorcycle Drive-By, featuring the band Third Eye Blind. And uh, when we went to the break, we had that lovely clip from the film. And now we've got more of a treat for you because David has quite a history in the business. Uh, David, first you, you... You were at MTV and you had the breakthrough show College Life. Um, tell us a little bit about College Life. Yeah, so College Life was an interesting story. I grew up, ever since I can remember now, even in high school, I was running around with small handicams making films uh, and you know, insisting that my friends and family members uh, become actors and actresses, uh, much to their dismay. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I love the idea of going back to that source as soon as I graduated. So it was, it was very interesting because about two years later, I, I think I was probably 23 or 24 at the time, I had an idea to, to go back to the university. I went to UW-Madison, which uh, I'm an alum there and great film program. And the idea was for these students to tell their stories because we reality TV was really exploding at the time. The Hills was probably the biggest show on MTV. Mm -hmm. And we all knew that reality television was anything really but reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it was contrived and the sets were lit and we realized that there were scripts and stuff like that. So the theme was you've seen reality, this is real and a way to make the show and give us a great constraint so it could actually see the light of day was let's make it really cheap, let's have no crew. And in doing that, you have this inherent you know, authenticity uh, for it. So we actually went down to the campus and convinced these four very diverse, great students to tell their stories. And it was kind of a critic's you know, it was a critical hit, hit and um, MTV was going through a lot of changes at the time. They had just removed the music television from under their logo. Mm -hmm. This was the last show that was produced before everything was in HD. And it was the last new show before Jersey Shore. So they were clearly going in a, in a very different direction. But mm -hmm. um, we luckily had a great season out of it. And um, so I guess that was my first foray into to documentaries. And then, then I wound up doing about six features that were narratives mm -hmm. uh, and then came back into documentaries with uh, the Curtis Lee and the Guardian Angels product uh, project and then, and then Third Eye Blind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself uh, of two different minds when you're transitioning from uh, narrative to documentary or do you find it an easy sort of fluidity between the two? I find it easy because it's just the story is a story. And mm -hmm. what do they say? A uh, fact is sometimes crazier than fiction. So mm -hmm. if you have a great story and you have a great subject. Um, I, I view myself a, a storyteller first and foremost. Um, yeah, so I, I find the process similar because even in a documentary, documentary, you need to you need to see the arcs. You need to see the. It's you know you don't just turn the camera on and go. You need to chisel out that story mm -hmm. from. from from the, you know, from the character. Here's a here's a crazy question. Uh, what would be your dream documentary uh, subject, person living or dead? Who would that be? Walt Disney. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I, I think that Walt Disney was. Um, um, 
I actually just got back from Disney World again. I've always found it very creative. It's very creative for me. It's a creative place. Um, mm. Funny enough, I actually design toys and games as well, which I know seems kind of outrageous. Like how, how could this guy do both the fields? But there is a, a, a very big overlap if you think mm. about it. With, mm. um, like The Walking Dead is a model that started as a comic that went to a TV show and they have board games and action figures or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which went the other way. Uh -huh. So I think entertainment's entertainment and there's no one that, and then you hear about the Marvel model, but I really think that model started with Disney, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that no matter who you are, there's something in Disney you identify with, especially now if they've taken in Star Wars and Marvel or whatever. If you like the rides, you like the rides. If you mm. like going to Epcot and being able to travel the world in, in, you know, in a mile or two rotation, you enjoy that. There are different aspects that, 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 that I found interesting. I, I just found it interesting that Walt wanted to create this place where people could get away from their lives, mm. uh, no matter how much money you had or where you were from you could kind of come to this place and experience something like that to mm -hmm. just creatively escape. And I find that that's kind of what filmmaking is. So mm -hmm. to me, that, that, that would be an interesting um, angle, angle to explore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and now you've uh, um, embarked on this new adventure with uh, your production company, Cine Cinema 59 Productions. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Cinema 59 Productions. So Cinema 59, I, 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 had, I came up with the name um, right when I graduated about 15 or so years ago. Um, and the idea was cinema with an accent aigu or whatever was, was to hint that I love French film. I'm, I'm a Francophile and, and that was so important for me, especially in my formative years. Mm -hmm. um, just the idea that you could just make it, just go make it. Doesn't matter if you don't have the budget or it's not perfect yet. If you, if you make the film, you could make the film. Um, so that, that I wanted to inspire myself with that in 59, I just felt was like 1959 was right on the cusp of a lot of those movies coming out. And I think around that time, you could argue the birth of independent cinema. So mm -hmm. since then, I've just been trying to make as many movies as I can, whether we had money to do it, whether we should have had more money to do it and just kind of no excuses filmmaking. And I've tried to use as much of the same crew as I can and really build a, a family like that. And, I, and I've had a great crew around me for, for most of my career, which is, which is really nice. How, how uh, important is it to have sort of that family of uh, great people around you as a filmmaker, as a, well, uh, not just a filmmaker, but also as a, a producer um, in the work that you undertake? Um, I think uh, it's extremely important. It's extremely important because first of all, you want to show up to set with people who you love and respect and want to work with. I mean, if mm. they're not, it, it's too often I've experienced sets or thankfully most of them aren't mine where everyone is annoyed or frustrated or mm. just not calling it in. I'm, I'm sure every, and I'm, you know, I, I think that's just obvious that that's sometimes happens. Um, I try to do everything I can to make that not happen. And I think the way you do that is, Oh, the, the, you know, everyone kind of knows each other from every other project that the more you could do that, the more everyone's in it together. Mm -hmm. And I, I love class. Collaborating. I have a very specific vision, but I think that I look for, you know, Brad to make me better, Ryan to make me better, my cast and crew to always make me better. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I enjoy that. And I think it's extremely important because um, you can't do it on your own. Now, uh, earlier in the show, you teased us with uh, a little bit of what uh, you are working on for the future. 
Uh, can you can you give us a little bit more insight into what we can expect? What are some of the things you have on tap uh, going forward? Yeah, so so this was nice to come back and talk about motorcycle drive-by because since then I did a film called Disintegration Loops, which was um, based on William Basinski's uh, Disintegration Loops, mm-hmm. uh, which was this amazing piece of of ambient music that was created right around the nine eleven attacks, mm. and uh, William actually saw the, the the towers fall from his loft in Brooklyn, and he, mm. he in fact, oddly enough had a um, a meeting there that day and, and, and wound up not going hmm. and and how it happened is kind of folklore at this point almost but this ambient piece became almost an elegy for 9-11 and wound up just exploding i mean uh hmm. wire pitchfork vice like everyone jumped in on this and it became one of the best reviewed albums at that time mm-hmm. so when the pandemic started I, I was on pitchfork as i am on every morning um and I saw that Billy was releasing new music and um, I found, I thought that would be a really interesting story to tell 20 years later on the anniversary we're in a, a New York city kind of has almost that ghost town feel that unfortunately, of course it had a nine 11 now yeah. we're in a pandemic. Let's explore this piece and, and hindsight. And um, we wound up shooting the whole thing on zoom. So that was really interesting. So, oh, wow. so, and that got into South by Southwest, which was great. And, um, we're just kind of finishing the festival circuit now and taking that out. So, so that's a piece I'm excited about. And mm-hmm. then, um, um, and then I did a follow up to the Guardian Angels because uh, Curtis Sliwa just ran for mayor. He actually had yes. won the Republican. <laughs> yes, I was. For, yeah. I was coming to that. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, he he he. Uh, amazingly, I mean, what he puts his mind to, it's 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 pretty amazing with. Mm. with political experience he, he won the republican primary and and he's I, you know it's not that he he's a true republican in the sense that i think his ideals are very liberal and very um you know from what he did with the guardian angels um it's amazing what he did i think for our city and mm-hmm. uh he kind of reached out to me and we talked about doing another movie on it and uh so we followed him uh, on this uh, campaign that was kind of just slapped together at the last minute and he mm. you know, was he he was uh you know as close as you can be let's say to becoming a, a mayor mm. uh up until a week or two ago so just we just finished that haven't even you know, literally are putting the, the credits and titles together now mm-hmm. and then i mentioned that mickey spillane project which i would love to do because i'd love to get back into narratives it's been about two or three years so mm-hmm. I'm kind of mm-hmm. making sure that that's the next one if you if you uh, if you knock on wood, if you do undertake the that project, what would you like to shoot it? Oh, actually, I know where I I, I, I want to shoot it in Northport, uh, mm-hmm. which is um, about just about an hour out of Manhattan, where mm-hmm. I'm born and raised and where I'm located. Um, mm-hmm. the, the great story, actually, but quickly, Max Allen Collins, who's another hero of mine, um, he's a great. Uh, writer and he wrote Road to Perdition and created mm. Road to Perdition and, and amongst so many other uh, wonderful titles. Uh, we co-wrote the script together, which I'd never done before. Um, and um, we, we, we wrote it with Northport in mind because again, I think, and I can't stress this enough, especially for people listening who are you know, get, just getting into filmmaking we wrote it with Northport in mind so that the budget could be small, so that we'd have everything built in, so that we could go 
get right to work if, 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 if we get our budget. So I think it's important to, um, to, to, to always keep that stuff in mind. Mm, mm. It's all very exciting. I can't uh, wait to see uh, see what, what comes next. And I'm sure our listeners uh, are definitely chomping at the bit to see uh, what you have next on the uh, movie screens. Um, where can fans and new fans uh, find you on social media, etc.? So for cinema59.com, so that's just cinema59.com, uh, kind of will we'll lead to all of my movies and my work. And, and uh, I think that's a great jumping off point. Um, and, you know, you could also reach me at uh, aspiring filmmakers. Feel free to contact. I'll get back to you if you want to drop a line on my site. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, a good way to, to start. Well, there you have it, uh, film fans and listeners. That was our guest, David Wexler, who brought the film Motorcycle Drive-By about the band Third Eye Blind to us here at the Flick Fair Film Festival. David, thank you so much. It truly was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It was, it was great. And uh, well, there you have it, listeners. We've come to the end of another podcast. And don't worry, we'll be here next week for another exciting story, just like the one David has brought to us here. But until then, take care.